Amen. Debs and I, while we were on vacation in England, thought it would be appropriate to watch an English uh, series. So while we were on vacation, we started watching an English crime drama that is set in the 1950s in a small parish just outside of Cambridge, England. And the the main character is the parish priest, who for some reason... uh, that helps or assists the police detective in solving certain crimes. But there's always been a sense of edginess about this, uh, this parish priest. His, name, his character's name is Will Davenport. There's always been something edgy about him, and kind of things came to a head on the last episode that we watched, where Will Davenport is struggling with some things from his past, So the way he decides to resolve this struggle and this internal turmoil is he decides to show up drunk at his uh, mother and stepfather's party. And then later on in the episode, he ends up sleeping with a suspect, a murder suspect. And what shocked us the most was the people on the series, in the, 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 the characters, they didn't consider that inappropriate behavior for anyone, let alone a parish priest. And what was even more shocking was they actually celebrated his decision. They celebrated the fact that he had chosen these kind of uh, uh, opportunities for freedom, and he was relieved at the end of the, se- end of the show that he had stepped into freedom because of some of the decisions that he made. Now, it got me thinking, has there ever been a time on TV or in movies, and there might be one or two examples, but generally, I don't think there are many times when a a priest or a pastor or people that are passionately following Jesus are ever portrayed in those shows as, as men and women who are loving and compassionate and thoughtful and gracious and kind and servant hearted, but also who are God fearing and live in such a way that they honor Jesus. And I think you would agree with that. You know, they're, 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 most Christians on TV shows, most pastors or priests are portrayed in very different ways. But I think TV or movie makers specifically, but society at large in general struggle to portray or understand followers of Jesus because they don't understand the question that is at the very essence of the series that we are currently in. And I think it's perhaps a question that you might not understand. The question that we are trying to answer through this series is, who is the God of the Bible? Or more specifically, what is the God of the Bible like? This is our second installment of what is gonna be a six-week series entitled, God Has a Name. Now, last Sunday, we learned that a name in the, the, in the biblical context, in the, in, in the ancient Near East, was so much more than what it is today. Today, it's a, it's a tag or a title that we use to refer to one another. But a name in a biblical context told us something about the person's character or their identity. It told us something of who they were. And that's exactly what happens here in our text in Exodus chapter 34. We, we learn something about God. We, we, we learn the meaning of God's name, and it helps us to answer the question that we're trying to answer, what is God like? So let's read together Exodus 34, 
verse 5. This is our text. This was our text last week. It's going to be our text for the next five weeks. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. Now, now God starts by proclaiming his name, the Lord, the Lord. Now, I need to just give a quick summary of what we spoke about last week. The Lord if you look in your Bibles, is all in capitals. Now, it's easy for us to make the mistake that that refers to a title. But because of a poor translation, I want to tell you that's not a title. That actually is his name. A better, more accurate translation would be Yahweh. That's God's name. And it is first revealed to us in Exodus chapter 3, where, where God calls Moses to go and lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. And, and, and Moses says to God, he says, God, if I go and do the things that you've asked me to do, if I go to the people of Israel and they ask me, what is your name? What, what are you like? What do I tell them? And the Lord answers, I am who I am. Or some translations, or, or it's possible to translate that, what I am, I will be. Essentially, God, God's ex existence doesn't depend on anything or on anyone. God does not fit into our world or our categories or, to, or into our definitions or boxes. He is consistent. He is unchanging. He is unshifting. He is always and forever. I want to say this again. As you read your Bibles, not only through the series, but beyond the series, I want you to be, look, I want you to be on the lookout for LORD, all in capitals. And, and subconsciously, I want you to insert the name Yahweh, because that's the name of the Lord, and we are defining what that name means. An example is Psalm 8. David, in the first verse, uh, declares, O Lord, our Lord, O Yahweh, our Master or our King. O Yahweh, the name of the Lord, our Master or King, the, the way we relate to the Lord, the, the, the position that God has in relation to us. It begs the question, how do we relate to God? As Yahweh, the person, a person, do we have a personal relationship with God? Or as our master, the way or the things that he does for us? And I hope that we relate or through the series will begin to relate to God as, as a person, as one who, who, who enables us to have a personal relationship with him. That's what happened to, to Moses. We, we read a passage in Exodus 33 last Sunday, and, and it starts with this amazing verse in verse 11. The Lord, listen to this, would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. If that's true for the old covenant, 
How much more should it be true in the new covenant, in, the, in Jesus? And Hebrews chapter 4 gives us a clue. This is how much more. Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence. The throne of grace. How? With confidence. Not, not cowering in fear. Not, not wondering whether God is going to dismiss us from his presence. We approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and grace uh, and find grace to help us in our time of need. Sometimes we think we can only approach the throne of grace with confidence once we've read our Bibles consecutively for maybe five or six weeks. Or, or maybe once we've tithed for like, you know, four months in a row. Then God, then God will receive us. Then we can go to the throne of grace with confidence. But it's in our time of need. Clothed in the person of Jesus. That enables us to come confidently into the presence of the Father. And so Moses cries out, God, show me your glory. Show me what you are like. That's his prayer. That's, that's our prayer as a church, isn't it? We want to see the glory of God. We want to know God in his fullness so that we can display the fullness of God to our nation and to our neighborhood and to our city. And Yahweh answers, this is what my glory looks like. This is what my name means. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. God's then, and by that I mean God's with a little g, and God's now, again, God's with a little g, are fickle and brutal taskmasters. Now, that's a whole other sermon for another time. But to put it, to give you some context or to give you some, some, something to hold on to, I want you to think of idols. Idols that we can typically kind of worship or, or things that easily take the center or the place of most importance in our lives. Often they are good things, but when good things become the greatest thing, think money, think relationships, think career, think success or status. When, when those good things become the greatest thing, they are harsh and unforgiving and brutal taskmasters that, that will ultimately lead us into death. Yahweh, or, or Jesus, is the only one who knows how to live in the center of our lives and lead us in a way that ultimately brings about life and freedom. And that's why the God of the Bible, Yahweh, sets himself apart as the one in Exodus 34 who is gracious and compassionate. And that's what we're going to look at today. The words compassionate and, and gracious actually go together in the Old Testament. They are two words that explain each other's meaning. The word compassionate means to be merciful, to love deeply. The, the word compassionate, the origin or the root word from which we get the word compassionate is the same root word that, 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 that speaks about a mother's womb meaning that it speaks about the deep love that a parent has for their child. Let me give you an example. Psalm 103. 
Psalm 103 starts off, praise the Lord, praise Yahweh, O my soul, all my inmost being. Praise the Lord, praise Yahweh, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. And then in Psalm 8, the psalmist goes, Yahweh, direct translation from Exodus 34, Yahweh is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. And then verse 13, as a father has compassion on his children, So Yahweh has compassion on those who fear him. Or Isaiah 49, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will never forget you. I've never been the kind of guy that feels comfortable picking up a friend's baby and cuddling with him or her. That's that's not who I, I love kids. I love babies, but they are, for me, best interacted with from the safety of a stroller or a car seat, you know? I've kind of like grabbing the cheeks, and, but that's probably where I'm at the most. And the reason for that is because I love order, because I love control, because I love, because I love neatness. And kids are, are, are not that. I was thinking this through yesterday when I went for a run on the lakefront. And if you've walked a run on the lakefront on a Saturday, you know how busy it gets. Now, I don't bike, so I can't speak for the biking lanes, but the, the system they have on the lakefront is so simple yet profound. There are bike lanes and there are runner's lanes. And in the bike lanes and the runner's lanes, there are northbound and southbound lanes. So simple. If only everyone would obey the northbound and southbound clearly marked lanes for bikers and for runners. I was running by myself, and there were groups of runners running towards me, going south, but in the northbound lane. I'm like, friends, order, control, and neatness. Now, when our kids were younger, and if any of them got sick, Debs somehow from a dead sleep, would be able to hear them before that first would, would, you know, be projected across the room. She would sprint there and be by those, be by our kids' sides, you know, helping with their fever or mopping up their, their vomit. Me, on the other hand, if I woke up, and we'll get to that a little later, if I woke up, I somehow felt the need to have to control or bring about tidiness or neatness to the situation. So while Debs is cleaning up and comforting our kids, I'm cleaning the kitchen or I'm straightening the dining room table because I feel like I need to bring something to the situation and my order and control and neatness is relevant. The point I'm trying to make is Debs and my compassion to our kids looks different. Sometimes I'd make the mistake of saying to Debs after she's had one of those wretched nights helping the kids and I've slept right through it, I'd make the terrible mistake of saying, wow, isn't it incredible that our kids are sleeping through the night at the moment? But most mothers and fathers would know how dangerous that actually is. Now, as I say, I've never been a pick up another baby and cuddle them kind of guy. That's That's not who I am, except for three kids. And those are mine. They unlocked something in me that I never knew that I had. Now, don't get me wrong. They they drive me insane some of the times. 
Uh, I'm trying to instill order and control and neatness into their lives. And they, it feels like they have taken it upon themselves to, to resist that. But be that as it may, they've got my heart. And that I, I use as an, as an example, as a small taste of how Yahweh feels towards those of us who walk with Him. And so compassion is the feeling word then graciousness, remember those two words go together, go together, compassion is the feeling word, graciousness is the doing word. God, God uh, uh, feels for us, he feels compassion for us, and so he is gracious towards us. He steps into our lives and he does things. And so with that as an example, we're going to turn to Jonah chapter 3. Uh, with that as the, sorry, as the foundation, we're going to look at an example of, of how God uh, 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 feels compassion and works graciously in the hearts of those who follow him. Jo uh, uh, Yahweh calls Jonah, who was a prophet in Israel, to preach repentance to the Ninevites. Now, there are some here who have sensitive stomachs, and so I want to be aware of that. I'm not going to describe to you how brutal the, the Ninevites were. But let's just say, no one had a heart to plant a church in Nineveh. Christians all the time say, oh, I have a heart for this people group or, or, or for that city. No one had a heart for the Ninevites or for Nineveh itself. And when God calls, when Yahweh calls Jonah, he jumps on a ship and literally goes in the opposite direction to Nineveh. It's like you intentionally climbing on the blue line and going to, I think it's Forest Park on, the, on that end, instead of going to O'Hare where you were meant to go. Tarshish is, was actually at the very end of the, of the known world at the time, in the exact opposite direction to Nineveh. But Yahweh eventually gets Jonah's heart through a storm and through a fish, and eventually he obeys and he preaches God's word and incredibly the people of Nineveh repent. In Jonah chapter 3, the king says this, let's give up our evil ways and violence. Who knows? God may relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And then in verse 10 it says, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented. Some translations say he had compassion and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Now, this is where the story should end. This is where the credits should roll and we move on. But Jonah has to have the last say. And in verse 1 of chapter 4, he says this, but Jonah, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord, Lord, this is remarkable, isn't this, uh, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I was trying to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew, direct translation from Exodus 34, that you are gracious and compassionate slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. As surprising and as shocking as it seems, is Jonah's reaction that hard to believe? It's easy for us to talk about 
God's compassion and grace. It's easy for us to desire God's compassion and grace for ourselves. But what happens when God is compassionate and gracious to our enemies? What happens when he's compassionate and gracious to someone who's hurt you? What happens when he's compassionate and gracious to a parent who has abandoned you? Or a spouse who's divorced you? Or a friend who has spoken badly of you? Or a boss who has fired you? You see, we want God to be compassionate to us, but we long for him to judge others. Let me ask you this. Is there someone in your life that if God were to bless, just like Jonah, you would become angry? I wonder if today is the day we can allow God access into our hearts to heal that wound that you might be carrying. The God of the Bible, Yahweh, is compassionate and gracious. And I want to now turn to the New Testament and see uh, uh, examples of where we see this in, in Jesus, Yahweh in the flesh. Uh, Luke chapter 17, Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem, and uh, he comes across 10 men who have leprosy, and they cry out to him, Jesus, Master, have pity, have mercy, same word as compassion, have compassion on us. And then Jesus, moved with compassion, heals them. He's gracious towards them. Do you notice the, the heart of Jesus, compassion towards the lepers, and then he's gracious to them by healing them of their disease? The exact same thing happens in Luke chapter 18. A blind man, Bartimaeus, cries out to Jesus, Jesus, son of David, Jesus, the Messiah, in other words, have mercy on me, have compassion on me. And Jesus says to him, what do you want me to do? He says, I want to, I want to see, I want to be healed. And Jesus heals him. Two quick things that I think we can learn from these little examples. Firstly, I think there are incredible lessons here on how to pray. Sometimes we pray, sometimes we ask God to move or intervene in a situation that we face because of who we are or because of what we've done. Lord, you know who I am. You know I am, I am going hard after your heart. Lord, you know that I've read the Bible six times this week. Lord, on, on, on the back of that, would you move in this situation? Sometimes we pray through the lens of what's been done to me. Sometimes, if we're honest, we play the victim card. God, this is not fair. It's not fair what's happening to me. So Lord, please would you intervene? Friends, I, I wanna put it to you that Luke 17, Luke 18, and there are many other examples in the gospels show us that we don't pray to God off the back of things we've done. And we don't pray to God off the back of the things that have been done to us. We pray to God because of how we know him to be. Lord, God, Jesus, have mercy on me. Why do we ask Jesus to have mercy on us? Because we know he is compassionate and gracious. And that's the second thing that I want to put, to put to you. Jesus is both compassionate and gracious. He has, his heart has moved towards us and he does something about it. Throughout the gospels, people dismiss the sick or dismiss the poor, or dismiss the marginalized. But Jesus' heart breaks for them, he's compassionate towards them, and he steps in and does something about it. 
If we're honest, I don't think that often represents the things that we do. If, if I'm honest, I know sometimes when I'm preparing a message or reading the Bible, I know that God gets my heart and challenges me with things to do, but sometimes before the day is out or before the week is out, I've already forgotten the things that God has asked me to do. And on the other extreme, sometimes I'm doing things that God has not asked me to do, and I'm busying myself with duty and obligation. There are many incredible kingdom opportunities, ways that we can partner with God to advance His kingdom, serving the poor, feeding the hungry, welcoming refugees, praying for the sick, comforting the dying, fighting sex trafficking, fostering abandoned children, and so on and so on. The question we have to ask is, what has God called you and me to do? And it's an important question. What has God called you and me to do? Because if we're not careful, we'll very easily turn opportunities into obligations. Jesus has made it very clear what our obligation is, what we must do. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first commandment. This is the first thing you must do. And the second is exactly like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Over and above that, friends, God has presented opportunities for us to partner with him in advancing the kingdom of God. So let me ask, are you stuck somewhere between feeling stirred and taking up action? Do you need to take up opportunities that God has put before you, or do you need to stop the things that he hasn't asked you to do? I want to change track, change tech just a little. I think sometimes we can mistake, we can make the mistake of thinking that Jesus, the, if I can use these words, the New Testament quote-unquote version of God, is a lot more palatable than God the Father who we read about in the Old Testament. Sometimes we can think that they are two completely uh, kind of opposite versions of God. You know, Jesus I get, but God the Father in the Old Testament, he's a whole bunch more sterner and angrier. You know, there are things that I would ask Jesus of, but even if I were to ask those things of God, I think he would be angry for me even asking. The Father would never allow it. But friends, what I want to do in these next few minutes is show us that's not the Father that Jesus teaches about. Before we go any further, I do just want to say in these next five or ten minutes as we talk about God as Father, I know that for some, maybe even many here, this might be difficult or painful or hard for you to Kind of understand. I, I don't want to dishonor my father who's passed away, but throughout my life, I really struggled to understand my earthly father's love for me. I, I know he loved me, but it was always distant. It was always at arm's length. It was always kind of theoretical and not so much practical. And the older I'm getting, the more I realize that there are wounds that I'm carrying that need to be healed. And so I just want to acknowledge that this might be difficult for some, but we cannot steer away from it because it's what the Bible teaches. Jesus says this about God the Father, essentially, that God the Father is love. 
God the Father is so full of life and blessing that for all eternity, He has been overflowing with it, and He is the fountainhead of goodness and truth and beauty. God the Father is not created in the image of our earthly fathers, nor are our earthly fathers, even the good ones, a true reflection of who God the Father is. Our Heavenly Father is eternally happy and is for us and loves us. He is the God of abundance and creativity and justice and hope and redemption and rescue, purpose and meaning. Each one of us can legitimately say, I am his favorite. Without that making, without making that any less true of the person sitting next to you. I want us to turn to Luke 15 if we can. I want us to to have a look at what is known as the parable of the prodigal son, and often the focus is on the younger son, but this is a parable just as much about the older brother and about the father, which is what I want to focus on real quickly. Now, if you're not familiar with the story, the, the younger son comes to the father and he says, Father, I want my inheritance. In, in, in biblical terms, in the cultural terms, it's, it's literally saying, Father, I wish you were dead. I want nothing to do with you. And remarkably, instead of banishing the son, the father gives the son his request. And so the son goes off and he squanders his inheritance. And then in the place of absolute despair, he wonders if his father will take him back as a servant. I want to say this before we carry on. The fact that the son was lost did not diminish his worth and value to the father. The fact that the son was lost did not diminish his worth or value to the father. If I had a $5 note neatly folded into my wallet and put in my back pocket, it's worth $5, as is the $5 that might be in the washing machine, or the $5 that I know that I had but I've lost. The worth and value is exactly the same. That's true of you. Every one of you sitting here who made it to church today, it's true of the people who might still be making it home right now from a challenging night last night. And it's true of everyone who don't have a home. We are equally worthy. Our value is no different to the Father. Every day, the Father would stand on the edge of the field and he would scour the horizon. Every day, his heart would pound a little faster, hoping that this would be the day. that his son would come home. In verse 20, it says, so he got up, the son, and went to his father. But while he was a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. And he ran to his son, and he threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. And the son tries to explain to the father what he has done, and and the father interrupts him in verse 22, and he says to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost 
and is found, is found. And so they began to celebrate. Friends, this is the father that Jesus wants us to know. He's not some mean-spirited, angry tyrant who is endlessly disappointed and annoyed with you. He does get angry. We're going to learn about that next week. He is slow to anger, but at his core, he is a father who, who ran to his son, who lavished him with love, and he restored him. Adele, in her song, Hello, says, I must have called a thousand times to tell you that I'm sorry for everything that I've done. That's not the relationship we have with Yahweh. He's compassionate and he's gracious. It's not too late to tell him that you're sorry. He's at the edge of the field, waiting to welcome you with open arms. So here's the challenge for us as we bring this into land. Luke chapter 6, verse 35. Luke chapter 6 is uh, Luke's summary of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says this in Luke chapter 6, verse 35. But love your enemies, the Ninevites, the prodigals, those who've hurt you, those who've spread lies about you, those who've turned their back on you, those who've made you angry because God is blessing them. Love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because He is kind and great and He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. He's kind to the Ninevites and to the prodigals and to me and to you. And then in verse 36 is this remarkable and just overwhelming and probably one of the most challenging verses in the Bible. Verse 36, Jesus says, be merciful, be compassionate, just as your Father is compassionate. So what's the challenge? The challenge is this, friends. As followers of Jesus, we are called to imitate God. We are called to reflect his glory and to reflect his name to the world around us. And if it's, this is a truth found throughout the scriptures, but if, you, if you're needing some more convincing evidence, Paul says this in Ephesians 5, be imitators of God. Be imitators of God as dearly loved children. In other words, it's realizing that we are loved children of the Father and the love of God fills us up and begins to overflow in the world around us so that we, in loving others, can reflect the Father to them. If the gospel was only about God forgives my sin, which he does, there would be no motivation in us to, to reflect him to others. But the gospel is about God forgiving my sins and restoring me into intimate relationship with him so that I can go to others and reflect his love to them, forgive them, and be in restored relationship to them so that in doing so, I can reflect the love of the Father. And so friends, Exodus 34 verse 6 and 7 is not just about the name of God. It's about you and me as followers of Jesus. God the Father is gracious and compassionate, and you and I are called to be gracious and compassionate. Yahweh is slow to anger. Yahweh is abounding in love and faithfulness, and you and I are called to be and to do exactly the same. Last week, Colleen 
encouraged us with this word. She said this, as we grow, as things change in the church, we need to be people of godly character, like our Father in heaven. We need to be passionate about humility and love and patience and respect. In all honesty, she could have read Colossians chapter 3. Therefore, and with this I end, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you.